Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I appreciate all of you out there for being with us today. There are some bleary-eyed legislators and reporters, lobbyists and others, down at the state capitol this morning. Uh, Yesterday, of course, crossover day, the day uh, on which presumably a bill has to pass one house or the other to be continuing, uh, to continue its journey toward uh, possible passage. Um, And they went till 1130 last night. So it was a late night. And uh, so while I'm mentioning that, I should initially introduce uh, on our panel today, uh, Representative David Wilkerson, Democrat from Powder Springs, because David, you were up late last night and you still made it to the show this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here as always. Um, Yeah, we finished about 1130 last night, so it wasn't too bad. Uh, It was as expected. So looking forward to the show. We're going to talk a lot about uh, some of the high-profile bills and the fate that uh, they met yesterday on Crossover Day. But let me introduce the rest of the panel. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC. Hello, Tamar. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too, Bill. Got to enjoy this beautiful spring weather while we can. Gorgeous out there, and I guess it's going to get cold. My wife tells me we're supposed to get cold temperatures next week. Is that right, Tamar? Are you doing weather for the AJC now as well? <laughs> I'm not okay with that. No, I'm not doing weather yet, but but we'll see how long until uh, we might hear an indictment announcement from, from D.A. Willis. So until then, I'll be pondering yeah. weather. Uh, uh, yeah, we, we really need to get to hear what Fannie Willis plans to do. Um, Kendra king Mammon joins us again today. She is a professor of political science and associate uh, provost at Oglethorpe University. Kendra, it's nice to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to be back with everyone. And I'm like, tomorrow I'm pondering the weather, too. <laughs> uh, Leo Smith, who is a, a longtime Republican in the state of Georgia, worked for the state Republican Party, has been a, 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 a consultant on Republican campaigns, but also now is the CEO of Engage Futures, a government relations organization. Leo, I know we had trouble a minute ago connecting you. Are you back with us now? I can hear you slightly, Bill, so I understood that I was being introduced, and I hope you can hear me. We hear you just fine. We'll try to make all this work. Um, Tamar, let's start going over a few of the measures uh, that have been high-profile bills at the uh, Capitol this session. If, if I can, though, there's one that has not gotten quite as much attention as some of the others, but that I think is really important to talk about today. Uh, Because yesterday, the Senate approved what I think, unless someone corrects me on this, is the most sweeping plan to provide vouchers for public school students in Georgia to go to private schools. $6,000 a student can uh, take it. it, The uh, sponsors of the bill say, look, we're not going to raise the budget to do this. What's going to happen is the state uh, pays about $6,000 per student in public school. So what's simply going to happen here is the money's going to follow that student to a private school. But vouchers is an issue that has been a huge divide between Republicans and Democrats for years, and it's gone through the Senate. We don't know what's going to happen in the House. Tamar? Yeah, and I understand this is an issue that has been kind of been kicked around the gold dome for a couple of years now. Um, I know last year it had been taken off the table after some flyers went out that upset uh, the late Speaker Ralston. But you're absolutely right. It's an issue that's divided Democrats and Republicans. Democrats say you're taking money out of desperately, uh, need, you know, public schools that desperately need it um, in areas that are struggling. Republicans say it gives uh, families and students choice if they're stuck in a failing school district to take the 
you know, take them to a better school. Um, I'll be curious to see how the the house tackles this issue. Leo, school choice has long been a high, a highly uh, 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 important issue uh, for Republicans, not just in Georgia, but across the country. Yeah, a journalist who I will let remain named uh, admitted to me the other day that he was struggling with the school that he was in, but it is the cost of transportation to a public charter school because public charter schools don't have transportation that uh, prohibits him from making a better choice, he and his wife are making a better choice for his family. And that's part of what's being considered here. And post-COVID, you look at things like uh, a lot of schools were shut down, a lot of students got loss of learning. And so these options to give parents ways to deal with the personal nature of how they want to approach education, and even what risks they're willing to take whenever schools get shut down for a variety of reasons to continue their children's learning is something that this bill hopes to address, to give people more ways to facilitate affordably um, access to public charters or even privates. Uh, David, uh, as you well know, the legislature and the governor for years struggled to try to fully fund uh, public schools across the state of Georgia and weren't able to do it, thankfully, uh, in, in part because of federal money that came in during COVID uh, and and uh, other surpluses, uh, tax collections. We were able to finally get on track with, I think, full funding of schools. And I do believe that this, as Tamar points out, Democrats have often said, we need all the money we can get for our public schools. We can't allow them to fail. Uh, the one aspect of this bill says that uh, the voucher is not going to be triggered unless schools are funded to the maximum. Is that right? Yeah, the Senate has sent over quite a few bills that we're going to have to really discuss over in the House, and this is one of them. Uh, yes, we have fully funded public schools the last few years, but I believe everybody acknowledges the fact that that funding formula is outdated. And so if we have an old funding formula that doesn't address the current needs that we have, such as the learning loss, the need for literacy programs, et cetera, then we truly aren't funding the needs that are there. So we're funding the formula, but not the needs. And so if we're going to start pulling this money and reallocating it to other schools, they did make a change to say it's only, I guess, the top, the bottom 25, I believe. But at the same time, you're still pulling from the schools that probably needed the most. Um, and so I think I'm looking forward to the discussion. It's my first year in education committee. I've always been a big public school supporter, but I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion and, and, and really digging into the numbers as well, because I think you also have to look at it from economies of scale. So when you look at a business or, or a school, anything, um, it's not proportional. 6,000 may be a proportional amount, but when you add it to 30 kids, you get those um, the benefit of having the masses. So, um, so I'm looking forward to the discussion. Kendra, the $6,000, uh, which, by the way, does not have to be used for education, according to the Senate bill. It can be used for books. It can be used for other uh, aspects, transportation to schools, whatever. But $6,000 is not enough money to get a child into any private school in the state of Georgia. I think the average cost, oh, which includes paro paro parochial schools, is like $11,000 a year. And one of the other things that critics of this measure are concerned about in that respect is that the sponsors of the bill in the Senate to uh, try to uh, assure its passage added a clause which says this bill will only apply to students in the bottom 25% of performing schools in the state. The problem there is those are also some of the poorest schools in the state, which means that the families there, $6,000 isn't going to get them into a private school. Absolutely. I, I think while in theory this, this bill is proactive, there are so many hidden costs and unidentified costs and equity gaps uh, with this voucher program that I think it's going to continue to hurt those not only in the uh, lower 25 percentile of these schools, but it's also going to hurt parents trying to figure out um, how to fill in that gap financially. Um, and then just travel costs alone, right? If I'm if I'm traveling, uh, let's just say an hour, two hours each day to get to this school, when do I factor in time for homework uh, and things of that nature? And so for me, this is one of those symbolic versus substantive legislative bills. And I am concerned because we're only eight years 
post uh, the Atlanta school crisis, right? Um, and so we haven't fully um, recovered from that and we're offering something that will continue to skew that bottom 25 who um, from an economic standpoint um, are challenged as well. Um, Leo, before we go on to another subject, um, why is school choice such a major cause of Republicans? Well, you know, we'll recall when we looked at uh, amendment, uh, changing the amendment of our constitution to allow um, school choice years and years ago, um, the Republicans were not for it because they saw it as sort of interfering with the largest employer of the state uh, teaching, and, and they have um, spouses that are also teachers. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, uh, the, the issue of local control was um, heavily debated as to whether or not we should allow um, support of our local school district as they existed. But what we found is, is that Republicans are, are focusing on liberty. They're focusing on making sure that people have um, the ability to choose the type of education that they want their children to experience. And there is a real genuine interest and allowing those people who are strident, who are breaking out of the lower middle class, who just need a little extra booth to become part of that talented 20th, that talented 10th, to be able to get access to private education or better education by moving from a school that it is in the bottom 25 into a school that's in the top 50. That's actually uh, some of the policy philosophies that are driving this movement amongst Republicans. All right. I, I just wanted to uh, highlight that because it hasn't been getting a great deal of attention. It is now, now that it's passed the Senate. David, one last note on this. There is no fiscal note attached to this measure at this point. We have no <laughs> idea how much it, 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 because there are going to be costs. But for example, David, um, there are many families that don't send their children to pre-K or to kindergarten or first grade in the public school systems. Now, if they have a $6,000 uh, uh, voucher, uh, they could very well decide to send them to a uh, private school, presumably, and that will add costs. What are the chances, from your point of view, David, that the House uh, is going to support this bill? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we tend to look at, look at it um, a little bit closer than what the Senate does. And you're right. I, I haven't seen a fiscal note in probably over a year, to be honest with you. Um, we, we stopped doing them um, for any bills, for the most part. I always hear that bills are being processed, but the bill <laughs> typically gets passed and then we may see something at some point. So I doubt we'll see a fiscal note on this either. Um, but that is that should be concerning that whether or not you agree that they're completely accurate, at least they give you a ballpark of what a, something will cost. And right now we don't have that. All right, um, let's move on. Tamar, um, when it comes to sports betting, uh, it appears that four strikes and you're out is the rule of the day. There have been four sports betting bills that were introduced either in the Senate or the House, and as crossover day uh, ended last night, none of them remained alive. What's going on here, Tamar? I know, and my understanding is ultimately they only ended up voting on two of the four. Um, but still, and this is after how many years of, of this proposal coming up in some way, shape or form. And look, there've been a lot of questions about what needs to be done to legalize some form of sports betting. Does there need to be a constitutional amendment? Uh, did the Hope Scholarship uh, kind of create the pathway for it? And you can just kind of piggyback off of that. Um, so there's been real kind of questions around that. There's all the different versions. Do we allow horse racing? Is it only online? Do we want casinos? And so for me as an outsider, who's not following it every day like my colleague Maya Prabhu is, first of all, it's just hard to keep up with all these different proposals, what they would do and what's even needed. Uh, but it looks like uh, no dice this year, although there are still chances for it to be revived in the last uh, hours of the legislative session. Absolutely. As we talked about on the show yesterday, somebody can always find a bill that this could be amended to potentially. Um, Hendra, Speaker John Burns, in the aftermath of uh, a crossover day when the bills did not move forward, said this, quote, this year was not the right time for it in the House. Um, Kendra, there's 
continues to be, although there's more public acceptance today of sports betting particularly, there continues to be a lot of pushback from people who are morally opposed. Yeah, I, I don't think we have the appetite for it. I think we forget that, you know, OTP is uh, and beyond is is typically conservative. Uh, ITP inside the perimeter, you know, uh, anything goes. You know, it's it's that phrase, welcome to Atlanta. So I don't think the appetite was there. But I also think when we look at what's going on, even with, you know, some of the violence uh, related to Cop City and things of that nature, I don't know if we were adequately prepared holistically to pass that legislation in the heart of Atlanta, knowing some of the violence and some of the trials that we're, we're uh involved in right now. David? You know, it's, I think it is the moral issue for a lot of people because we in the House had probably the most straightforward bill, which was you just need 91 to get past the finish line. It was just going to be sports betting. And with that not passing, my understanding is that um, the Republican caucus just didn't have, you know, half their caucus to vote on it. So, um, typically, they don't bring anything forward unless at least half their caucus supports it. And so um, that's when we started hearing that it may not move at all. But, you know, it, it keeps coming back every year. So we'll see. But I think the advocates were pretty confident that this might be the year to get it done. And and um, if you can't get 91, you definitely are getting 120. Um, and so, you know, it all comes down to whether it's a constitutional amendment or just a straight 91 vote majority. My understanding is if you think it's um, luck or skill, if it's luck, it's a lottery game and you can do the 91. If it's skill, then we have to change probably the constitutional amendment. And so that's probably the simplest way to look at it. And and everybody thought it was luck. And uh, I guess the luck ran out for everybody supporting the bill this year. So, David, were your constituents talking about this measure at all? Was it on their minds? Did they communicate with you about it or was it not a high profile measure for them? It's not a high profile measure, but when I do town hall meetings or the emails I get, everybody's in support. Like I haven't received anybody that says, you know, maybe one or two that says they don't support it. Um, so I think my constituents would be fine either way. They want it, um, but um, but it's not a high priority for them. Um, Leo, uh, it does appear, as, as both Kendra and David pointed out, that the question about whether this should be a constitutional amendment or simply a majority vote attaching sports betting to lottery was one of the things that held this up. In the Senate, uh, Bill Cousert, Senator Cousert from Athens, um, said that he felt this bill could not move forward without a constitutional amendment attached to it. He felt that would be de- deceptive to uh, the people of the state to do it that way. Um, and, and, and so there could be, that could be one of the reasons that this thing is uh, uh, stuck in a logjam, yes? Yes, I think you're right, Bill. I think um, there had not been a great enough mm-hmm. argument and attachment to what problem sports betting's revenue would solve. Um, as you recall, when John Watson, uh, former chair of the Georgia GOP and, uh, and lobbyist for casinos, as a matter of fact, was brought to become chair of the Georgia GOP years ago, 2015, he basically faced a resolution from Georgia GOP that was against casinos. And yet he won the chairmanship because he was a good fundraiser. In other words, conservatives, even standing on a moral platform, will bend a little bit if the cash solves some sins and some other evils. And the lobbyists could not, there were so many different factions of lobbyists on this bill that they could not come up with a messaging campaign um, that was like our lottery, that this is going to solve educational needs in the community. That wasn't what we heard because they never, they never created consensus on how to approach it. What's interesting, tomorrow is some of the most high-powered lobbyists in the state we're pushing for this bill. Lobbyists for each of the major uh, sports teams, professional sports teams in Atlanta and others were really thinking this was the year it was gonna finally happen tomorrow. Yeah, and what Leo said is really interesting. If you aren't unifying behind one message, it, get, it gets really hard as a legislator uh, to to keep track of all the different uh, proposals out there, and just just makes it really tricky. And I, I don't think it helped that there were differing legal opinions on on what was needed and. 
and all of that. So I'd be curious to hear what, what David has to say about all of that and kind of keeping, keeping things straight between the different bills and the different factions. David. Yeah, there, like I said, I don't think there was any consensus. Um, once the governor seemed to get comfortable with the speaker, get, seemed to get comfortable with the 91, we thought that was an opening. Uh, and when I talk to constituents, they pretty much say that it's luck. And so I felt comfortable going down the 91 path. But, um, you know, the 120 gives more groups the opportunity to hold leverage, <laughs> I guess. And so some people may truly believe it's 91, but say it takes a constitutional amendment because then that's when more horse trading happens. Um, and so I go down the path of 91, meaning civil majority, but I don't think there is any consensus down at the Capitol. All right. Um, we'll see whether that bill finds a way to resurrect itself or one of those measures uh, when they reach uh, finally sine die. Um, let's move on. Uh, tomorrow, a bill that got an, has been getting a lot of attention is a transgender ban uh, for doctors and hospitals from delivering hormonal or surgical treatments to transgender young people who are seeking gender-affirming treatments. It's been a very controversial bill. It's a part of the culture war that Republicans have been waging across the country, including here in Georgia. And uh, the Senate yesterday uh, passed a somewhat modified version of the measure, but nevertheless, it would make it uh, very difficult for young people to begin the process of uh, of transgender transformation. Yeah, this is a proposal that's been floating around the state capitol for a couple years now. We've seen a couple states pass similar uh, bills over the last year or two, and this is the second bill um, to pass Georgia in the last two sessions having to do with transgender kids. Um, last year, of course, Governor Kemp signed into law a proposal that would force um, transgender uh, children uh, to play in sports leagues that aligns with their gender at birth, not the gender that they align with. And um, this one would go even farther. It would block, um, you know, doctors helping transgender kids by by prescribing things like estrogen and testosterone to help their, um, you know, align their their gender with their gender identity. And, um, you know, it would bar surgeries, um, some pretty emotional testimony on the floor of the Senate uh, from folks like Sally Harrell, who has a transgender son kind of talking about um, what it's like to be a parent and um, already uh, kind of the emotion tied up in this uh, debate, how transgender kids are, are far more likely uh, to be at risk of suicide and severe depression. Um, and Republicans saying they just want to buy kids time so they can really figure out kind of who they are before doing anything um, irreversible. It, it's worth noting that this proposal doesn't go as far as some of the others that we've seen in other states. It does not allow families to sue doctors who help kids transition, and it would still allow puberty blockers. Um, that could change uh, as this goes to the House, uh, but still, there's a lot of blowback and um, ink that's being spilled over this proposal. Kendra? Yeah, I, I think that this is one of those uh, legislative bills that it touches the heartbeat, it touches the nerves of people, uh, depending upon where they see sit. I, I think that, you know, this is a bill that shows party alignment. Um, and so for me, I, I think that the hope is that this is a little bit less restrictive than the abortion bills that were passed last year, right? So, so I, I see that at the end of the day, we're saying, hey, let's try to figure out what's in the best interest of children. Um, once a person turns 18 years of age, they become legally an adult, they can make some decisions on their own, but in a minor status, we will uh, allow purity blockers to occur, but we won't allow for these surgeries. And so, you know, it's it's the best of times and the worst of times, depending upon where you sit. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm interested to see what the House is going to do with this particular bill and how it will either push back on, on some of what the Senate has, has allowed or how it will uh, be in alignment for this. Um, again, for me personally, um, I, I think that we have to cherish our children. If we don't allow children to drink um, at a certain age, if we don't allow them to vote at a certain age, I think uh, that we need to be slow um, and, 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 and aware 
um, and, and premeditated holistically uh, in making this type of legislative decision. David, uh, Tamar mentioned uh, Sally Harrell, who does have a transgender uh, child, and, and she did give some very emotional testimony on this yesterday. And among other things, she said this, quote, going forward, let's all bring some humility to this issue. Yes. Let's admit what we do and what we don't know. And when we don't, let's ask someone who does before we take action. And it does feel, David, as if uh, this has become part of the culture wars and and that there's been very little thought given, and possibly by Democrats who oppose it as well, to the real, uh, what's really happening here in terms of transgender uh, uh, youth, especially. I, I agree with that. I had not heard that testimony, but that's the first thing that came across my mind when we just started talking about this. I, I, I believe, you know, my my thoughts are that the side that is pushing this legislation has not had discussions with the families of those that are impacted. That's just the thought I get. And so that's why you see the emotional testimony. Uh, and so there really needs to be a sit down and, and discussion on how this impacts our youth and, and do it thoughtfully, not just you know trying to get the headlines. And so hopefully the House will do that. But I don't know how we do that during a 40 day session, because these are the conversations you have outside of the session when you see this much passion and you want to you want to take some time and actually have those behind the doors discussions with folks on how this impacts people's families, because anybody that has a, a, a youth that is a transgender youth is going to know that life is a lot different than you thought it was going to be. You know, and so. I think it would be helpful to delay this. I don't know if that will happen, but I have been encouraged by the stuff that we've done in the House and we have been more thoughtful and and we've been doing it for years, stopping bad Senate stuff. So this will be the opportunity to, 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 to do that again. Leo, let me give you a final word before we got to get to a break. This is an educational opportunity and that's what has to happen here for the legislators. I, as a parent of two, am confused about TikTok and its impact on the synaptic development and brains. Uh, and I read research after research on just social media influence on my children. It's really difficult stuff. This is something that we're really gonna need to be educated on. And that's what the time, this bill it will remain alive and we'll continue to discuss this until people feel that they know enough, just like the medical cannabis stuff. They need to know enough. Well, Leo, but this bill does go to the House and the House will have an opportunity to vote um, for or against uh, these measures. It's not as if it's gonna be, unless somebody decides to table it, it's gonna be carried over to uh, the second year of the biennial. No, what I mean is we'll continue to have discussions. I mean, some bills will make it in crossovers and some bills will you know, have to be reapproached in a different way. And I think this is one of those uh, situations where something may happen to uh, create laws related to transgenderism, but th that doesn't mean that we're over in progress. I mean, we can still progress even from bad bills if they get approved and we can progress um, if nothing happens, um, the, you know, other things can happen afterwards. In other words, I'm saying that we may end up uh, going backwards a little bit when it comes to some legislation on this issue because of lack of understanding. But the fact is, is that I think we're just beginning the discussion here in Georgia on what the science is related to these issues. Okay, Leo Smith gets the last word on the first segment of the show. We've got to take a break. Back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. State Representative David Wilkerson, Kendra King-Mammon of Vogelthorpe University, Leo Smith, and Tamar Hallerman join me today. We're uh, going to finish up in the next few minutes talking about some of the high-profile measures that uh, did or did not make it out of crossover day uh, yesterday. Um, another bill that did make it, Tamar, was Esther Panich's bill 
uh, that would define anti-Semitism and essentially uh, make it uh, a, a measure that could be, in fact, uh, attached to hate crimes uh, prosecution. And that, we, I think, all know, uh, really got some uh, momentum after uh, anti-Semitic flyers were distributed in some communities across the northern suburbs. Tamar? Yeah, including at Esther Panitch's house. Um, and so pretty powerful images to help drive this bill. Um, I was surprised it did get a little bit of pushback. 22 uh, people voted against it. There were some Democrats who said that it wasn't needed because the hate crimes law protected against uh, you know, religious crimes. And, and they were wondering why um, Jews were getting a specific carve out in this. But Rep. Panich was talking about how, um, especially when it comes to symbols like swastikas, um, this would allow it to be admissible um, in court as evidence of a motive when, when prosecuting crime. So um, it took a little bit longer than I think a lot of the advocates expected. Um, but I, I'm curious to see how quickly it moves in the House or sorry, in the Senate. David, uh, the bill got a lot of bipartisan support. It was passed overwhelmingly. Uh, we talked on the show yesterday about the fact that specific references to swastikas as hate symbols, were, uh, that language is pulled out of the measure, and none of us on the show yesterday quite understood why, but apparently it was pulled by the sponsors themselves who felt that it might create a stumbling block of some sort. Can you illuminate us on that? Do you know what happened there? I am not sure. And, 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 you know, I was one of the 22, to be honest with you. Um, I am just, you know, it, when you look at the sponsor of the bill first, it, it ties into hate crimes and the sponsor of the bill actually voted against hate crimes. So it's hard to have a discussion on how this ties into hate crimes and why it's needed when you didn't support hate crimes in the first place. And so what I was trying to find out is what does hate crimes bill not allow to be prosecuted when there's anti-Semitic information distributed. If that's the case, then let's relook at every religion. Let's look at Israel. You got into the debate of, is this about Israel or is this about you know, um, the Jewish religion? And so I think there were still a lot of questions. I have no problem with it passing. Um, one of the co-sponsors is my seatmate, and she was very passionate in the well about why she supported the bill. But at the end of the day, when you, you have to question why the author of the bill is doing the same bill every year, why it was got pulled by the speaker in the initial initially, and then why it ended up moving. So I don't know if it's going to move in the Senate or not, but there's a lot of questions that are out there as far as why this is needed and, and, and why existing law doesn't cover it. Kendra, it strikes me that this and the overwhelmingly bipartisan support it got is as much has as much to do with just public pressure as we've seen the rise of anti-Semitism. You know, it it we, we I, I we we recognize that there have been more crimes or violence against Jews uh, in in the last say five years uh, than we're used to seeing in the past, which does not mean that that Jews deserve some kind of special treatment. Um, but there is, I think, a lot more pressure to protect them against uh, uh, violence or uh, any other kind of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, we, we cannot uh, ignore the egregious past of, of what uh, Jewish people have gone through historically, um, both you know in the United States and um, around the world, right, going all the way back to the Holocaust. So I think that there's an embedded sensitivity um, uh, that, that breeds and leads to protection, which, which is noble. Um, and honorable, I think what we also have to look at and not ignore is the violence that uh, happened against Asian Americans that continues to happen. Um, there's a nuance with that, um, the ongoing violence against African Americans. So I think holistically, uh, we have to look at legislative overhaul um, and pass stronger uh, laws that protect all people uh, holistically. And that ties us even back into you know the transgender conversation. I think a lot of what mm. we are seeing are, um, you know, uh, legislators um, navigate this year, it, it speaks to the cultural wars, but it also speaks to these underlying issues that we've allowed to go under the crust. And they're starting to chandelier now. And so there's this public pressure mm. across the board to do something. And sometimes it's a splitting of hairs and what we do. And while we're advocating for one group of people, we still could 
uh, leave other groups of people unprotected. So to David's point, I think we've got to figure out how to have these conversations beyond the 40 days. I think that's really well said. And Leo, um, it, we, we've got to point out that uh, violence and uh, bigotry against uh, Asians in Georgia, we've had those horrible, horrible shootings as an example, the long history of bigotry uh, and violence against uh, uh, blacks. Um, we, we, we cannot get to the place where we're somehow picking sides on which groups deserve protection and which don't, which is why I think what Kendra said is important. It's this, how do we look at this in a holistic way, a society that is respectful and welcoming of people regardless of race, religion, ethnicity. But that's a world that we're just not ready for right now. Well, we're certainly struggling for it because it's not an isolated issue. It's geopolitical. Um, you can see the influence even in some of the, the floor um, speeches of how people feel, uh, you know, foreign relations um, are involved in this discussion. You could see, uh, you know, geopolitical considerations when there were attacks on Asian Americans during a heightened time where uh, some people were blaming China for being uh, inappropriate with uh, Africa. And that happened right here in Chambly Dunwoody during that same time. And people just didn't understand the issue from a geopolitical perspective and then took action locally uh, in response to it. Uh, so, so we're not in a bubble. But Georgians themselves are going to have to develop an ethos as a as Georgia citizens, as a Professor Moman is saying, of what kind of um, relationships we want to have with one another and how we want to re uh, recognize dignity in one another. And we're struggling with that. But at the same time, we're struggling with, with Supreme Court limitations um, related to free speech and free speech rights. And I think Esther Panish did a really great job of sort of describing um, some of the nuance of that when she actually pointed out from herself, the sponsor of the bill, that a swastika isn't necessarily a hate image if it's done in a, a particular context. And she tried to educate us on the difference between hate-associated language and symbolism versus educationally-associated language or art-inspired um, art um, symbolism for, for greater awareness. And I think that's the complication that uh, she was trying or they were trying to avoid when they removed the swastika from the bill. All right. Um, a lot more happened uh, yesterday on Crossover Day. Um, and as the week goes by, we'll talk about some of the other measures that are still moving forward. But for the time being, I want to take a break. And when we come back, I want to turn to a couple of other important subjects in the news. Uh, first, uh, looking at what happened as a result of the weekend violence at the uh, site of the planned Atlanta Police Training Center. And then I want to talk about the fact that today is actually the 58th anniversary on which we mark um, the violence of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama. We'll do that when we come back on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Tamara Hallerman, we now know that the GBI has charged 23 people with domestic terrorism after yet another violent incident at the site of the Atlanta Police Training Center, or planned uh, training center. Uh, we know that there was, we've seen video in which people were throwing rocks and bricks, uh, fireworks at officers at, at the site. Um, it's noteworthy that only two of the people charged with domestic terrorism, which, by the way, was a charge that only last year Governor Kemp got behind in a big way after a big protest in which police cars were, uh, 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 you know, had, had their windows broken in, there were fires set. But only two of these people were actually from Georgia. They came from as far away as Europe in a couple of cases. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how this uh, site of this police uh, planned police training center has become 
not only a national, but an international symbol, not only of kind of clearing a, a natural growth forest mm -hmm. kind of for environmental uh, concerns, but also people concerned about the militarization of police forces. And I was pretty amazed to see, um, you know, when, when GBI posted the, the mug shots of all 23, just how international this group was. I mean, the story made the front page of the New York Times this week. It's really picked up national resonance at this time. Um, and it only seems like this will will be continuing this this violence as this this construction work continues. Uh, Kendra, it it really has become obviously a flashpoint. It reminds some people of what happened when anarchists descended upon Portland, uh, and in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd. And and the, and the question here is, um, there are some people who have legitimate concerns about the environment, about the forest, part of which is going to be taken for the training center. Uh, but, that's it, it, but that's quite different from what is clearly an anti-cop sentiment among some of the more violent protesters. Absolutely. I, I think we, we have to beg the question, uh, what part of this protest and these protesters are erring on the side of political expediency and really wanting to demilitarize the police, really want to um, say, hey, let's look at alternative ways to use these 85 plus acres, perhaps create some green space, some connectivity to the community. So we have to look at that. But we also have to beg the question uh, as it relates to how much of this is political opportunity where outsiders are coming in, they're taking advantage of the city situation, they're getting international press, which bodes well for their causes. Um, and so so they're not going to stop, coupled with the fact that we are still uh, trying to petition, cajole, and beg President Biden to select Atlanta as the site for the DNC. So the timing of all of this is peculiarly interesting to me. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we can allow um, for a quelling of this so that law enforcement on all levels can actually get back to helping to protect the citizens of the state of Georgia. David? I think we first have to acknowledge the fact that both Democrats and Republicans, and I think leadership at both the local and state level all agree that protest is okay and violence is not. And so there's no soft on crime in this situation. I think everybody believes that if someone's committing a crime, whether they're from Georgia or as the majority of these people are from out of state, they will be held accountable for their actions. We just need to make sure that the protesters don't get caught up with those that are creating the violence. And, and that is always the concern that just because you're in the scene doesn't mean you're part of the crime. Uh, and so I think that's going to require a lot more effort for law enforcement to distinguish between the two. And so, um, but I, I think we all agree that protest is good, violence is not, and, and we're going to hold everybody accountable if they impact uh, the city of Atlanta or Georgia. Yeah, Bill, Leo? Bill, if I may, the the thing that I, my heart goes out to the local protesters who have genuine issues and desire for dialogue with local leaders in a way that rule of law can be maintained. Uh, those people truly exist in this matter, but there is a lot to be learned um, by folks by looking at the nonviolence movement of the Reverend Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, where at times when he said, though I might be aligned with the protesters on the Vietnam War, I'm not aligned with their process of using violence and destruction of property. So he, he went to his council of leaders, his uh, other stakeholders, and said, yeah, we may be aligned with them on some issues, but not their methodology. Our methodology raises a moral threshold and creates international outrage on uh, the issue and it creates clarity. And I think that these protesters, wherever they're from, could learn a lot from that. And, and that should take a time out and wonder, are we really helping those people who locally have to live with our actions as we exist from outside of that community? You know, back in April of 2021, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor then, dealt with this issue and other people like Mike Rinder, the, 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 the artist, and, and, and Stacey Abrams stood and, and asked those people, leave our community to be managed for community engagement by ourselves. And, and, and it didn't turn out so well. 
But this is something that local people in Atlanta, of all races, creeds, and class, um, wish these and these and these antagonists from outside of Georgia would leave it to us to solve our problems. All right, uh, it's kind of hard for me to see how you de-escalate the situation um, when there's just a tinderbox that keeps getting uh, more and more inflamed. Um, but we'll watch it as uh, events unfold. I, I want to turn finally. Uh, to this anniversary uh, today. On March 7th, 1965, uh, tomorrow, as we all well know, one of the most infamous days in, I think it's safe to say, uh, 20th century American history, a large group, several hundred marchers who were uh, activists for uh, uh, voting rights for African Americans, began what they hoped was going to be their march from Selma to Montgomery, the capital of Alabama, to demand voting rights that have been denied to blacks for so long. And of course, they were met immediately at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, brutally attacked by police, by police dogs, tear gas. It made national headlines. It made national news. And it began a transformation of how America thought about civil rights in the South. And of course, Tamar, one of the people grievously injured in that day was um, John Lewis. Yeah, marching in his trench coat and his backpack. And, you know, there's really horrible images of a state trooper just bludgeoning him in the head and knocking him out. And I think it was a moment that really stuck in the consciousness of America. A lot of that footage was aired on national television as folks were watching Judgment at Nuremberg, which explored um, mm. kind of Nazi bigotry and coming to terms with that. And I think especially that juxtaposition of seeing what was happening in people's own backyards in America really helped incentivize uh, the Johnson administration to, to push for the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and, and really to take seriously a lot of the concerns that were being raised by, by civil rights activists. And well, that you thank you for setting that up because Kendra, I want to bracket exactly what Tamar talked about. Here's what Lyndon Johnson said to a joint session of Congress just a week or so later, on March 15th, 1965, when he called for Congress to pass a Voting Rights Act. Let's listen. There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. Kendra, that was 58 years ago. Just this past Sunday, President Biden was at Selma to commemorate the anniversary, and here's what he said. The right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. And this fundamental right remains under assault. We know that we must get the votes in Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. I made it clear, I will not let a filibuster obstruct the sacred right to vote. Kendra, the voting rights uh, fight continues. Yeah, it's probably one of the tragedies of the 21st century, uh, that in 2000 and, uh, 2023, that certain groups of people are still restricted and a fundamental right uh, that was passed in 1865, right? So again, I, I think that this begs the question, what are people afraid of? Why are there so many blockages to this? And it boils down to pow power. Politics is about power. And if you restrict groups of people who uh, in the next 20 to 40 years will be the majority uh, in the fundamental right, it allows a minority to still possess power. I think this is one of those issues that Dr. King talked about, where he said the vocation to speak is a calling it agony, still we must speak with all the humility that it requires. This is a situation where we've got to throw humility out the door and we have to fight, we have to fight, and we need coalitions to do so. Leo? 
No, I, you know, this always, this issue and how applicable it is today, um, the Selma struggle to today, where, you know, we're reminded how we can go backwards real easy when it comes to these demographic shifts and how people are wondering whether or not they will have the power that they've had in the past. And then they do electioneering and change laws in order to um, give themselves an advantage. Um, and this happens obviously on both sides. We have one side doing that more now than ever. And it reminds me that evil jumps in where goodness fears to tread, that quote. And that is, is that when, when section four of the Voting Rights Act um, was the preclearance where um, we would have to have federal approvals for local changes and voting laws. When that was presented, there wasn't a lot of forward thinking about what formula would solve the problem of when preclearance is necessary because of discrimination. And to me, that's where goodness didn't jump in soon enough. And, and we lost an opportunity, and I hope we can get it back. David, we're running out of time, but the fact is the two voting rights acts, the federal acts that President Biden is talking about, uh, there is no will to pass them, especially in the, well, now in a majority Republican House, but the Senate can't get 60 votes for them either. That's correct. And, and looking back at history, it, the great thing about looking back 58 years is you get to see the history and get to see some of the progress. The challenge is that the, the, the issues we face now are not people on the bridge. People aren't being beat up. People aren't being attacked. Now it's a little more, it's less direct. And so the challenge that we face with access to the polls, a lot of times it's harder to explain because it's not just racial, it's economical. It's, it's, it's the part of the state you live in. It's part of the, you know, the part of the county you live in. So it, it's going to require some work, but there are some significant challenges and roadblocks to people actually being able to vote. Well, I, I really wanted to uh, honor the anniversary uh, of Bloody Sunday, and I appreciate all of you doing that. Uh, Tamar Hellerman, David Wilkerson, Leo Smith, Kendra King, Maman, thank you so much for being with us today for Political Rewind. Back with a brand new show uh, tomorrow. It's International Women's Day, and we'll talk about that on our show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.